DHK. Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage for the second part of an interview with historian Dr. Kwong Chi Man at Baptist University about a new project that allows you to see the whole Battle of Hong Kong, the 17-day invasion of Hong Kong by the Japanese military in December 1941, which ended with Hong Kong's surrender on December the 25th. With 10 years of information from military sources, maps, personal diaries, historians, hikers, photos, plus trooping out to hundreds of sites of pillboxes, gun batteries and other installations, Kwong Chi Man and his team have created a superb interactive map called the Battle of Hong Kong 1941, a spatial history project. In this week's programme, we look at some of the people that feature on the interactive map who were either military or caught up in the battle. Kong Chi Man also explains to me how to use the map, the different layers of military maps from both the Japanese and British, but you can also look at the battle sites and see where the nearest MTR station is today. So that's useful should you want to go and visit any of these sites. Dr. Kwong reads Japanese as well as Chinese and English, so was able to compile the stories of the Japanese military and their thoughts on the invasion. Among the Japanese stories we are showing on the map, one of them was actually a colonel from Okinawa. He was a distant a member of the Okinawian royal family. Before the 1870s, uh, Okinawa was basically a, an independent kingdom. And then after 1870s, uh, it was annexed by the Japanese empire and it was became part of the Japanese empire. The Okinawian royal family were, were moved to Japan. Some of them were educated in Japan. And for example, like this Colonel, uh, Colonel Oya Domali, he was educated in Japan and trained as a soldier, professional soldier. And he was the man who drew up the plan against Hong Kong in 1940 and 1941. So he was uh, one of the senior staff officer of the Japanese units that attacked Hong Kong. So after the Battle of Hong Kong, he was sent to South Pacific and his formation was destroyed in Guadalcanal. So he, he stayed in Guadalcanal for several months and, and he lost so much weight and he was wounded. And then he was sent back to Japan. But he was not discharged. He was promoted to full colonel and he became the head of one of the information branches of the Imperial Japanese Army. So essentially he was the spokesperson of the Japanese Army in front of the reporters. He really find it painful to be on that job because he had been to the front. He had seen actions and he saw how desperate the Japanese soldiers were when facing the American forces, the Allied forces. And then at the same time, he had to tell the reporters in Japan that it's victory after victory. So he left an account. When the war ended, he killed himself and his entire family. And he left a, a suicide note, a fairly long one basically blaming the entire collapse of modern Japan on, on the Japanese military who insist to start a war in, in China and then against the Western powers in, in, in Asia. So, yeah, he also mentioned the war crimes in Nanking in, and, and so on. So this particular story really reminds us that even among the Japanese, there were people who had different views who had different feelings. They were not machines. 
they were not faceless machines, killing machines. In, in some of the early accounts, especially when the shock of the defeat was still very strong, you have accounts that almost portrayed the Japanese as faceless killing machines, professional soldiers of them like ninjas, okay, faceless people who just came up and killed. But in fact, they, they, were, they were actual human beings. They had different feelings and ideas. And you have another Japanese officer who really should be held responsible for some of the war crimes in Hong Kong because his unit was responsible for several incidents of killing of prisoners of war. He was arrested after the war. And, and what was his name? Uh, he was Masa Orita. He was one of the battalion commanders uh, of the 229 Infantry Regiment. And when he, he killed himself, he left a suicide note to his family and children saying that I simply cannot live like a normal human being now, so please go on. Try to survive. And he killed himself before his, his trial. So, yeah, it, it, we are not trying to suggest that they should this kind of people should be forgiven or they are good people. No, no, we're not saying that. But we have to really show the human side of of the participant of this basically is 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 a tragedy for everyone yeah a war yeah you've got another faces of war that, so as we scroll down yeah i mean i have to say i mean i think for me that the fascination will be going through and seeing the different stages but also this definitely this personalities aspect is very interesting because you do get a picture of all the different types of people who would have been you know, involved in the war, affected by the war, and including, tragically, you have a nurse, and her name is uh, Eileen, nicknamed Jimmy Begg. And Eileen's only about 34 when she dies in 25th of December 1941 at St Stephen's College, and uh, this was a, a massacre of nurses uh, and wounded Allied forces. Yeah, and she was very likely raped by the Japanese troops under Masa Orita, the battalion commander we just mentioned and we traced the the movement of that particular unit during the battle and we saw that in fact uh, that particular unit should be re held responsible for several cases of killing of prisoners of war and later on rapes and uh, for example in uh, Saiwan and so on because that unit moved quickly and that unit was ordered to move a long distance so probably the com local commanders believed that they cannot bring in too many prisoners of war so they decided to kill them and then march on. So that, that could be one of the reasons, because in some other units, uh, there were not many cases of killing of prisoners of war. But, but of course, finding an explanation is not like absorbing it. No. It's clearly a violation of all the existing international laws back then, and of course nowadays as well. In terms of your sources, so you're looking at, I mean, you've got these Japanese military accounts of the invasion and strategies, and so they're, they're actually formally written, the, the senior military are saying what occurred during the battle, and of course afterwards. You've got diaries, you've got newspaper accounts, presumably. The main source for this map is the official records of both sides' units, because after the battle, both the British units and the Japanese units wrote their war diaries, and some of them are extremely detailed, down to hour-to-hour accounts. Some of them are less so because the, the officers were all killed. So, and and then later on, after the Second World War, you have the memoir of the soldiers, and then you have the regimental history. Regimental history on both sides. Basically, it was the collection of the memories of the the soldiers and the officers, and then. 
Of course, later on you have excellent studies by like uh, people Tony Benham and and Philip Cracknell and so on. Is a collection of all these sources which allows us to really reconstruct the battle to this extent. You know, with all these structures, like with the Gin Drinkers Line, were you trooping out every weekend to take photos to avoid the snakes? Yes, because of the online learning arrangement. So we actually during the the COVID period we had more time to move around. So. In the past year or so, we we walked on the Kowloon Hills, different hills to 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 really find the pillboxes. The, the process is like this: we we of course we already know the location of all these pillboxes, but we haven't been there physically. So we tried to uh, look at the aerial photographs, and we consulted some of the expert hikers. In fact, many of the hikers in Hong Kong. Have already found all these structures, and they left their marks. And sometimes they brought us up to see the structure. So it's really a good collaboration between. It is a knowledge transfer process. We we learned so much from the expert hikers, and and of course the the so-called amateur historians. They are not amateurs. They are actually so much better than us. <laughs> in, in fact, <laughs> for example, the the entries in Gulo.com is this marvelous yeah, information. Yeah, Gulo.com is of course the 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 Hong Kong history website run by David Bellis. And yeah, you have. Tens of thousands of pages there. It's really become an excellent resource over the last fifteen or so years. And we have the Japanese reports. And in fact, as for the gin drinkers line, after the Battle of Hong Kong, the Japanese military engineers had already drawn up individual floor plans of each and every、uh, pillboxes, and they already marked the location of the pillboxes. So we cross-referenced these Japanese records with the subsequent research. By Rob Weir and so on, and then we go up the hills, and and sometimes led by the the, the hikers, and then sometimes we just go up by ourselves. With the gin drinkers line, what I was interested in you finding was all of the Japanese draftsmen's after you know, so it's after the invasion they go back up there and they draw up all of these pillboxes. Yes, that really helps a lot for us to understand the gin drinkers line. For example, they will record the actual features of the line. For example, like the machine gun platforms, the loopholes, how it works, the steel shutters of the loopholes,、uh, the machine gun undercarriage, and how large the ventilation shafts and the hook and the the beds and how they were arranged,、uh, the water tank and so on, the the sound pipe of the pillboxes,、so、all these feature of a Hong Kong pillbox. In fact, they also informed us about the general design of all these pillboxes across the British Empire because the Hong Kong pillboxes are slightly different from those built in the UK in 1940. In anticipation of a possible German invasion, and different parts of the empire also have similar structures, Singapore, Malaya, and so on. But Hong Kong is a special case because you have a large concentration of these British interwar pillboxes, and of course, in fact, Hong Kong is one of the few places around the world which is basically a museum of military structures. You have military structures built before 1841, of、mm. course, before the British times, and then later on you have different periods of British military structures. Of、uh, uh, redoubts built in the 1860s, 1880s, and and later on large coastal defence batteries that were built in the early 20th century, and then you have interwar military structures, and then later on you have the Cold War military structures as well, dotted in different parts of the new territories. So. Essentially, collectively, it is just as Tim Coles said several years ago. It is collectively a very important piece of historical heritage. 
we have. So this is the Battle of Hong Kong 1941 Spatial History Project and it's just been set up by a collaboration with, so it's Baptist University, but uh, also, you know, these various historians, hikers, but who's done all of the kind of technology for it? It's a collaboration of the history department, of course, with the uh, digital services of the University Library of Baptist. That they provided the IT support of the whole project. And in terms of the user interface and user design, we we hired an outside company to work on it. It's an it's an online internet advertisement company. Yeah, so yeah I mean, no, it's I mean, it's easy. I mean, when I've been having a look at it, it's easy to navigate. You really just sort of click your mouse on bits that you're interested. In, just looking at the structures, you know, there's coastal bat search lights, pillboxes, demolition points, uh, communication uh, centres, naval defences. Also these different map layers, so it will be both the Japanese military and the British military maps. What's also interesting for me is that all of these concrete structures largely went up in the interwar period, so between the First and Second World Wars. So, But most of it must have been in the late 30s as the Japanese military were making their way down from Manchuria and Hong Kong was increasingly realising we could, you know, we could be in trouble here. Yes, indeed. Uh, in fact, most of them were built after 1935. Some of the large coastal batteries were also built after 1935. For example, uh, Stanley started in 1934, slightly earlier. But for example, Cape Degula, uh, you have two batteries there. One of them emergency battery, one of the much larger Cape Degula fort. Uh, it was finished in 1941, in fact. And in fact, some of these structures were designed by local architects as well. So we had a story of a local drugsman who helped to draft some of these shelters and pillboxes. And he too participated in the Battle of Hong Kong. He's a local Chinese called Charlie Leung. So this Mr. Charlie Leung was a drugsman. And during the Battle of Hong Kong, his title was the chief plotter. Uh, the chief plotter means that he was probably the man who helped the commanders and the staff officer to understand the situation on the map. One interesting thing about this project is that all these stories, if they survived the war, we can talk about their post-war lives. And, and many of their post-war lives are, are really related to the development of Hong Kong. For example, Charlie Leung later on worked in the government and he was uh, later on seconded for many public works projects, for example, the MDR lines and uh, some of the large reservoir works as well. So later on, we, of course, we can add more similar stories like Michael Wright also fought in the battle. Michael Wright, of course, uh, later on in the 1960s becomes head of the Public Works Department, but is seen largely as the architect of post-war public housing and uh, would pass away at the start of 2018 at the age of 105. I think it's good to have this map that does shows these different people. This one is very interesting. Uh, Mr. Chan Guan Bo is, is a scholar, is a Chinese scholar who works in Hong Kong U. So at that time, he was helping the Hong Kong University. And at the same time, he was also helping the, the Chinese nationalist governments to evacuate the important books and rare books and collections from different parts of China and ship them to different parts of the world, particularly into the United States. And basically, he was rescuing the cultural relics of the Chinese Republic. So he also worked in Hong Kong, you at the same time. So when Japan attacked Hong Kong, when the Pacific War started, he was living in Happy Valley and he left a very detailed diary talking about the experience 
not just during the Battle of Hong Kong, but also during the Japanese occupation. So we put his story also on the map in order to direct the viewers to his invaluable diary. And in fact, because of his contribution of trying to save these books, and in fact, during the Japanese occupation, he also tried to save Hong Kong used books especially the Chinese collection, because when Japanese forces wanted to confiscate all these books, and some of them were removed from Hong Kong. But Chan Guanbo helped to recover some of these books in collaboration with Charles Boxer, the intelligence officer. And later on, the British government gave him an MBE for his contribution during the battle and during the Japanese occupation as well. Now he lived till 1982. Yeah. So that's why this map also shows the post-war contributions and post-war lives of many of these people. Interesting. Yeah, it was an extraordinary effort. I mean, the actual putting together on the interactive side to the IT side was about 12 months, but you've got years-long research here. Yes, indeed. Uh, we we published our first book in 2013, and our actual research work started in some time, like in 2011. So basically, it's 10 years' work consolidated. I think it's, it's a very good uh, way of destroying our own previous works, yeah. Yeah, declaring war on ourselves, really. Try to revisit the topic, not just in terms of sources in the text, but also in, in terms of approach, in terms of technology. I, I think we, it, it, uh, it's a good way of doing it. And, and God knows what will happen 10 years later. This map will definitely go obsolete and we need something else. And probably not done by me, maybe someone else. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, you know, Japanese sources, do you read Japanese? I was trained in, in the UK to read Japanese. Not fluent at all as, as a speaker of Japanese. I can't really converse in Japanese, but we, we were trained to read. And when we can't understand uh, certain phases, we ask our Japanese friends. As a resource, you're, you're reading in Chinese, reading in Japanese and reading in English? Yes, indeed. The goal is to really combine sources of different, different languages. But of course, there are some languages that we, we simply cannot and, and do not have the resources and time to understand, for example, French. And then that's why we, we asked some of the scholars who worked on different fields to contribute. I would very much like to see the remaining Second World War installations preserved properly here with history plaques and photos for visitors to follow. With the COVID-19 pandemic preventing many people from travelling at the moment, there's been an increased interest in discovering what we have here. Many people have taken up hiking in the country parks, so it's an ideal chance to get that military history across to the visitors, particularly as this year is the 80th anniversary of the invasion of Hong Kong. The defence of Hong Kong was a multinational effort of those who considered Hong Kong as their home. I asked Kwong Chi Man to explain a bit more about how to use the interactive map. It's very easy to find online. Just type the title of the project into Google. It's the Battle of Hong Kong, 1941, a spatial history project. For example, you can change different map layers here by clicking the, the map layers mm. uh, tab. So you can change it to the Japanese map that was drawn in 1939, or you can change the 1941 Japanese map, which was the exact map used by the officers of the 230 Infantry Regiment when they attacked Hong Kong. So it was the 
map that shows the most updated knowledge of the Japanese about the British defenses in Hong Kong. So if you compare with these information with the actual location of the pillboxes, and you can you can really immediately have an idea of how accurate the Japanese military intelligence were back then in 1939 or in 1941. In fact, it was not it was not very accurate. No. Yeah, not as accurate as it was being portrayed sometimes. And then you can also select the unit symbols because we cannot assume everyone can be familiar with the NATO set of military symbols. That's why we also added a graphical set of symbols uh, whereas the viewers can immediately tell mm. uh, whether they're infantry, foot soldiers or artillery units uh, were presented by a single artillery piece or heavy or light artillery. They have different icons, aircraft and warships and so on. Destroy units are the structures like uh, the military structures are represented more like by infographics a simplified unit icons for example a, an observation post would be shown as a binocular Oh, or yeah. or anti-aircraft gun would be a very simplified anti-aircraft gun so that the viewers can immediately tell what uh, kind of structure it is and then you have the phases of war represented by human faces by clicking. For example, if you click on Kumta Prasad, one of the Indian officers who fought near Daihang in the Wong Lai Chung Gap area, and then when you click on it, and the story would appear on the right-hand side, and then you can see his picture. When you click on the picture, it blows up, and you have the large version of his picture, and you click on it, you can close it. And then the text explains his pre-war life and then his wartime experience as well as his post-war experience. And then you have some mentions of his awards other than the campaign medals. For example, this uh, Captain Prasad uh, was given military cross and then further reading and photo source or text uh, sources. And then when we talk about the progress of the battle, there is a play button. When Once you click the play button, you can see a clock in the left-hand side and it moves. It tells the changing time uh, during the battle and uh, the unit would move. When you switch on the units and you can see the movement of the units. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we can show the movement of the unit on both sides at different times. Yeah, so we're just watching, for example, 20th of December 1941 and it's about uh, 9 o'clock in the evening and as the clock goes uh, on, you can see all these units on the move across yeah. Hong Kong. And then you can see the Japanese, a full battalion, the 228 Infantry Regiment was moving up Mount Nicholson from the east and then it pushes the Winnipeg Grenadiers towards the west, towards Mount Cameron at that time. And on the map, you can also see that uh, that unit was supported by lots of artillery units back from behind. If you switch to the graphical icons and then you can see that all, the, all these guns are behind the Japanese infantry. And that explains why that push was very smooth. Because What's this helmet here? Oh, these helmets are destroyed units. Ah, these are skulls, actually. Yes. They are slightly too large. We will try to make it smaller. But uh, we sometimes uh, show the destroyed units because during the battle, many British artillery units were forced to abandon their guns. So some of these, the location of these guns are also shown on the map. And some of these guns were captured by the Japanese and used against the British troops. One of the interesting things about switching this feature on, that you can see a minute-by-minute minute or daily account and, and uh, you can watch all of these units on the move, is a really easy way for the viewer to understand the invasion of Hong Kong, really. But 
what was interesting when when you look at it is also something that you you've mentioned to me before which i'd like you to talk about is how despite the fact that the invasion is over in 17 days in december 1941 so you've got this withdrawal down to Hong Kong, there are success stories in it. I mean, you've got, for example, the evacuation of troops from Kowloon orchestrated by the Royal Navy. Yes, because if we focus on a battle in the textual narrative, sometimes writers or authors have to really highlight the important events. But in this map, we have to show everything. We try to show everything as much as possible. So sometimes we can show the often uh, overlooked events like how did the British troops withdraw from the mainland? That's a very important question because the entire mainland brigade basically withdrew from Kowloon to Hong Kong Island almost intact except for the battle losses. So how did that happen? So we, we look into the files and we look into the accounts. It was, of course, a well-recorded event in the official accounts, but it's, it's not always receiving much attention from, from the subsequent studies because it's, it's just a withdrawal. So we try to mark down the movement of the ships that picked up the troops from different locations, for example, from Jordan, from Staff Ferry Pier, from Kaitak Airfield, and so on, and, and show their movement, how these troops were rescued by a coordinated effort of the Royal Navy. This Sergeant Lee Kim Fai is actually one of my favorite stories because he was, uh, he was trained as a Hong Kong Chinese gunner. He joined in the Royal Artillery in, in 1938. He was one of the earliest local Chinese who joined up as a gunner in the Royal Artillery. And so when the war started, he, he was a fully trained soldier. He served in for three years in the British Army already. So he was a regular. He was not a volunteer. He is a full-time soldier. He and his comrade uh, were manning a searchlight at the entrance of the Stanley village in the evening of the 24th of December 1941. Their task was to light up the advancing Japanese troops and they lighted up the Japanese tanks as well and they helped the anti-tank gun nearby, there was a two-pounder gun next to the searchlight, to destroy the tanks. So the tanks were destroyed or damaged, but the, amongst the Chinese gunners who mended the search like only two survived. Others were all killed. So Lee Kim Fai was one of the survivors. So after the Battle of Hong Kong, he went to China, escaped from the Japanese occupation. And later on, he, he reported himself to the British Army Aid Group. So he, he, he joined it back. And when he was with the British Army Aid Group, he wrote a very angry letter complaining that he was bullied by a colleague who is not, is not Chinese. Of course, one of the senior colleagues of the, of the unit. And Colonel Wright actually listened to this carefully and uh, helped Lee Kim Fai to restore his rank and so on. So this story really tells something about the agency of the local Chinese who really were simply not just the victims or faceless people. They, they tried their best to survive, tried to do something in the middle of complete chaos. Lee survived the war and later on he became a driver. He did not get rich, he, he, he was not a prominent figure. But yeah, so, but also what I admire is that he has, he's already gone through the invasion of Hong Kong here. He's then escaped into the mainland and he joins the BAAG, which is, acts as a sort of espionage type organisation. So they're spiriting people who've escaped out and through China and uh, also organising spies back into Hong Kong to work in sabotage 
and there he is rejoining and he is a guard at Guaylin for the rest of the war for the BAAG so and then uh, says that he becomes a driver post-war and lives until the age of 81 and uh, in 19 dies in 1999 so yeah I like the fact that you're picking up these stories of uh, what I would class as more ordinary people who were also a major part of this war. So I think that's great that you get all of these stories out. Yes, uh, I think that's why uh, this is better than my previous work, Eastern Fortress on the Battle of Hong Kong, because that, that work is basically a military narrative trying to clarify the battle itself. But this project is something more than that by offering a more human dimension of the event's and also tries to link these events up with the historical structures and the physical environment around them. And I think this also gives us a unique opportunity to allow people from different sides to have a voice, not as simply a battle or a war or just a military event, but also a human tragedy involving everyone. If you'd like to go out and have a look at some of these Battle of Hong Kong sites, but would like an expert guide to go along with you, then I have a couple of recommendations. There's Martin Hayes, World War II expert who's lived in Hong Kong for more than 40 years. Martin Hayes is a tour guide with the group Walk Hong Kong, which you can find online. There's also Philip Cracknell, who you can reach through his Battle for Hong Kong blog. Philip Cracknell also recently wrote the book Battle for Hong Kong, December 1941. My thanks to Kwong Chi Man of the History Department of Baptist University, talking me through the Battle of Hong Kong 1941, a spatial history project. Please do go and have a look at this wonderful interactive map. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>